This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So how much money have you guys ever lost at one time or over time? And how smart do you think it's made you? Look, all I know is the more money you lose, the smarter you are. Mm. I am going to go out and just start losing money right and left now, now that I've learned of this brilliant business strategy from the president of the United States. But does that mean that you're limited in how smart you can be by how much money you have to lose. Well, if you I mean, lost... I can't lose a billion dollars because I don't have a well, billion dollars Well, maybe you're just not that with. smart to begin with. Or maybe you made up the billion dollars in the first place and then called it a tax loss. Oh, that's really smart. That's mm-hmm. smart. That yeah. makes you look brilliant. It would then also you're borrowing be money. a crime. You're borrowing intelligence, basically, in order to lose the money which represents intelligence. Then everything is for sale. If you don't make any money... You don't have to pay taxes. Thanks to Blinkist for supporting Rational Security. Fit more listening and reading into your life with key takeaways from the best nonfiction books. Get a free seven-day trial at Blinkist.com rs. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Privileged Executive Edition. I'm Shane Harris, privileged but not an executive. Never been an executive. But you have an executive presence. Do you think I have you. an executive bearing? Sort of just an, an importance, yeah. right? Like you're the boss of this mm. podcast. But you're the executive editor. That's does true. That mean you have, does that mean you have executive privilege or executive editor? Pri- what is executive She can talk about privilege? whatever she wants I'm going to have the Lawfare Office of Legal Counsel prepare me a memo on this very subject. I did that once. <laughs> I had the Lawfare Office of Legal Counsel prepare me an office on the editor-in-chief power. Excellent. I do. I remember that. It was before my time. It's a unitary um, authority. Yes. And it, it it's a wonderful memo. It's available on Lawfare and it has to do with the old Lawfare drone smackdown, which was refereed by none other than Shane Harris. That's right. So did you have the authority to drone people in addition to attack them with viruses as you did that I believe it was – the question was would it be consistent with the rules of the drone smackdown to cyber attack other drones? And uh, the Office of Lawfare Legal Counsel wrote a memo that said it was in fact consistent with the rules and even if it wasn't, I, as the editor-in-chief, had the undisputed power to waive rules that got in the way of my ability to win the drone smackdown. (laughs) The important thing is we take our jobs very seriously. Very seriously. And you won. Uh, I'm here with my friends Ben Wittes and Susan Hennessy in the Jungle Studio. Hi, guys. Hi. This week on the podcast, the White House asserts executive privilege over the Mueller report and House Democrats move to hold Attorney General Bill Barr in contempt. Republicans revive allegations of spying on the Trump campaign 
And Israel attacks a building housing Hamas's offensive cyber operations. So as we are recording on Wednesday afternoon around 2.30, I don't think that the Judiciary Committee in the House has yet voted to hold Bill Barr in contempt, but they are clearly moving in that direction. Uh, and earlier today, the White House announced that it would be asserting executive privilege over the Mueller report. Uh, and we also know that the White House is uh, blocking Don McGahn, the former White House counsel, from testifying before the Judiciary Committee in the House. Um, so let me start with this kind of two-pronged question. Ben, I'll come to you on this first. A, does the White House have a legitimate claim of executive privilege over the Mueller report considering the Mueller report is already public almost in its entirety? And B, if they actually hold – Congress holds Bill Barr in contempt, does that practically mean anything at all? Can I actually jump in with a yeah. procedural clarification sure, before go Ben it. goes to the substance of it? And that's that Sarah Sanders' statement this morning made it sound as if the White House was exerting executive privilege over the Mueller report, leading to all the questions that you were asking and a host of other questions because it also appeared to be exerting executive privilege over all investigative materials and everything that the House Judiciary Committee had subpoenaed. And so it was a little bit of maybe there's some executive privilege within there, but it certainly can't all be. So what were they claiming? I mean, it was a really both Sarah Sanders statement this morning was really difficult to parse. And the Justice Department's letter to the House uh, Judiciary Committee was very difficult to parse what exactly they were claiming. The letter that you need to read in order to understand what's happening is the letter that Bill Barr sent to, to President Trump this morning. In that letter, Bill Barr requested that the president invoke protective uh, assertions of executive privilege, basically citing to this OLC 1996 precedent, saying that when you need additional time to review materials to decide whether or not to invoke executive privilege, the president is entitled to evoke sort of a temporary uh, you know, placeholder privilege saying, I need more time to review this. The reason why Barr was asking Trump to do that is, one, only the president can invoke the privilege, and two, Barr wants it as a defense to an eventual contempt finding. So... While it seemed like sort of an extraordinary thing or, or like the White House was drawing a line in the sand, it actually appears as though this is more just about buying time in the negotiations between the Department of Justice and the House over what materials are ultimately going to be asserted as privileged. It's not the White House saying we actually believe this is all privileged. Well, that's interesting. And to, to answer the question, too, but it also does seem like the outcome, though, is that the White House is saying you're not getting the rest of the Mueller report that you want. So, Yet. Okay. Right. So I think the – I agree with Susan, not just about this case, but about all of these cases. Executive privilege issues are always debated in the language of high principle, and they are never, in fact, principled. They're always you know, the executive will produce as little as it can get away with. Congress will demand a lot and satisfy itself with, at the end of the day, you know, what they can get. And so there's a kind of shadow boxing quality of it that takes place in the language of law and is, in fact, best understood as a kind of, I don't know, shoving match. And, you know, it's really who gets up, who's down on the mat at the end of the day loses. And it really doesn't matter what legal principles they cite. I, look, here's what I think on the merits. 
I'm bewildered that this is the issue that Democrats want to fight over. And I, I can talk about why. But I, I think we have in substance the Mueller report. We, with a few exceptions, we pretty much know what it says. And uh, the, the, some of the exceptions are important. They are by no means the most important questions on the table right now. And so I'm, I find it odd that the Democrats want to have a big fight with Bill Barr over this document. But aren't they doing that to avoid the bigger fight over impeachment? I mean, this is keeping things at a medium simmer instead of a full boil. Well, right? except that I think if you want to keep things at a medium simmer, the right way to do that is with live witnesses, but that can actually tell you the story that the open parts of them, which they've tried to do too, but they're being blocked. Right, but they haven't tried very hard. They, okay. they, they, they've asked for McGahn's testimony, but as far as I know, they haven't asked for the testimony of any of the other people who were named in the Mueller or any of the people that Michael Cohen told them to call for. That exactly, <laughs> and you could tell, like, if you wanted to do a hearing a week that told the incredible story, you should be doing that with live witnesses, not with fights over documents that, frankly, whether we have 80 percent of the Mueller report or 93.7 percent of the Mueller report, that is not a distinction on which the public will care very much. That said, I think the idea that you would assert executive privilege over material that is redacted in the Mueller report that you have in fact shared privately with Congress, right? All of the redactions except the uh, grand jury material is ridiculous, right? You've already shared this material with Congress. Now, can you make a technical argument that there's a residual executive privilege claim? Yes. Is the executive branch nutty if they're really planting the flag on that point? That's nutty. All right. Secondly, is it reasonable to exert executive privilege over the underlying material, the exhibits basically, uh, the investigative raw material that underlies the Mueller report? That I do not think is ridiculous. And I opposed it when Devin Nunes went after raw investigative files and, you know, from the FBI earlier in the investigation. I oppose it now. I think it is not an appropriate thing for congressional oversight to be to be doing. And I know a lot of people disagree with me about that, but I don't believe in going after the work product of DOJ line attorneys, whether they're the Office of Special Counsel or whether you're doing it to embarrass the president or whether you're doing it because you hate Jim Comey and you think Chris Steele is the scariest thing in the world. So I think the merits of it probably differ a lot depending on the subject matter, the, the specific application. And then the one other thing that I'll say is, of course, this comes against a backdrop in which the president has said, we're going to resist all the subpoenas, right? And so in some ways, the fine splitting of the uh, peeling of the onion that I just did is spitting in the face of a reality, which is that the president is stiff arming them on everything, including areas where there's just no good argument for withholding information. And so I do think that colors the way you think about it. And that's kind of all I got. I agree with 
most of what Ben uh, has said, you know, we've had this debate on the podcast um, before about sort of the underlying investigative materials. On one hand, I agree that that's a sort of a, a dangerous path to walk down. On the other hand, I'm also uncomfortable with the notion of DOJ selectively deciding whether or not to comply with certain requests based on the political party that's asking for the request at the time the president is in office. You know, the the reason why I thought Rod Rosenstein was wrong to turn over those investigative materials was because it was the wrong decision to make. Once you open it up, I, I don't know that I fault Adam Schiff or Nadler or others for sort of pursuing that path. And, and I don't know that the, the Department of Justice actually has uh, any kind of principled argument or leg to stand on in, in refusing to provide at least some of those materials. You know, but, but I think Ben's point about this being a really silly thing to focus on and the Democrats really kind of screwing the pooch on this one right out the gate. There are incredibly important questions about the health of the nation at stake. And there are going to be really difficult and important fights to come, including fights over the scope of executive privilege, which is itself a very, very difficult fact-driven question. And that makes all of the frivolous, silly fights that they're picking instead not just a distraction, but a waste of valuable resources, both in terms of the committee's resources and public attention. When the committee is fighting to hold Bill Barr in contempt for not turning over 6E material, which he can't do without breaking the law, instead of saying, we want Bill Barr to join us uh, in requesting that the court release it or sort of being honest about what's going on, when they pick that kind of fight, it's really hard for the public to disentangle the meritorious objections or, or, or the silly objections from the really important ones. This is like a food fight, yeah. Exactly. And so you end up creating this perception and feeding this perception that, sure, the president is stonewalling everything, but the committees are being themselves unreasonable. And so it's just two unreasonable sides as opposed to one principled side that's trying to operate uh, you know, against a branch that is fundamentally denying principles of separation of powers. And so um, this is such an unforced error. It is such a waste of time. It's fine to continue to, to ne negotiations. It's fine to want to get the full redu unredacted report. It's fine to, to, to talk to DOJ and even kind of, you know, threaten DOJ in terms of getting as many materials as possible. But making this the centerpiece marquee conflict is just mind-boggling as, as to why you would do this as opposed to as opposed to focusing on getting Don McGahn to show up, getting people like Corey Lewandowski, Don Jr., people who have no claim to executive privilege, no claims to immunity. There is no legal assertion uh, that the White House can offer to prevent people from telling really, really important parts of the story. You know, the idea that you would invest your energy in this stuff instead, it, it, does, it does not make any sense as a legal matter, and it doesn't make sense at least to my mind, as a strategic matter. What's the practical effect of holding Bill Barr in contempt? Very little. You know, there are basically three ways to enforce a contempt citation or to make it real. One is impractical, which is to arrest the person on the spot and throw them in the Capitol jail. The Capitol jail. Um, and that hasn't been used, I don't think, since the 19th century. But um, the other way, one other way is the normal way is to refer it to the Justice Department for prosecution. 
you cannot refer Bill Barr to himself for prosecution. So that's the as the Republicans discovered with Eric Holder, whom they held in contempt over Fast and Furious and found that the Justice Department was not eager to prosecute the attorney general for representing the positions of the Justice Department. Uh, and uh, the third way is to file a civil suit, uh, which takes a long time. And so I think that seems to be the direction this thing is headed with one big caveat, which is that you know these things are often shadow boxing for negotiations purposes. And I would not be at all surprised if you know, either before the contempt vote or, you know, a few weeks after the contempt vote, but but still before anything's really come to a head in, in terms of a floor vote or going to court, you do have a negotiated resolution that will look ugly and unprincipled and but in which both sides get to say that they held off the marauding hordes. I mean, one thing is we have seen the White House sort of take this complete stonewall approach the attorney general cannot stonewall Congress forever. So uh, yes, he's taking a strong position right now, but this is untenable for both sides. And so ultimately, both are going to have to give eventually. Rational Security has a sponsor, Shane. It's Blinkist. For listeners of Rational Security, there are probably a lot of things competing for your attention. In addition to work, family, friends, there's a lot of news to digest. And it may be hard to find the time to sit down and read something you actually want, even Susan and my new book, which we just finished writing the other day and haven't released yet. You may have trouble setting aside time to learn about a topic you just find interesting. The Blinkist app helps solve these problems. Blinkist is the only app that condenses the main ideas from thousands of nonfiction books into bite-sized pieces you can read or listen to in 15-minute segments. Blinkist is for busy people who want to understand the main points of intriguing nonfiction books, but who may not have the time to sit down and read the entire thing. With Blinkist's audio feature, those users can also finish highlights for up to four books a day. And it's got a lot of titles that listeners of Rational Security will want to check out. For example, There are books on Blinkist that I've profiled on the Lawfare podcast, including Fred Kaplan's Dark Territory, The Secret History of Cyber War. This week, I'm also planning to read Blinkist's Highlights of Emotional Intelligence by Daniel Goleman. It's been a hectic few weeks, so I haven't had much time to read or listen to books just because they sound interesting. So I use Blinkist because it's given me the chance to explore the main ideas from books on my to-read list, even when I'm at my most busy. So, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for Rational Security listeners. Go to Blinkist.com slash RS to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash RS to start your free seven-day trial. Again, Blinkist.com slash rs. Okay, let's talk about another fight that's brewing in Congress over the Mueller report. Um, Republican lawmakers have revived these allegations, generally spearheaded by Devin Nunes last year, who we we mentioned earlier, that the Obama administration, quote unquote, spied on the Trump campaign. This largely stems back to 
George Papadopoulos and interactions that he had with someone who was acting at the behest, it seems, of the FBI uh, to try and get information from him about what connections the Trump campaign might have to Russia. Now we have, though, Bill Barr, in addition to Senator Lindsey Graham and the Senate Judiciary Committee, kind of breathing some life into this and saying that, yes, I think there was spying on the Trump campaign. Ben, to you, is Bill Barr the reason this is being revived or are there substantive new revelations or concerns, maybe even the wake of the Mueller report that are making Republicans think that maybe something improper or even illegal occurred in the FBI's probe of Russian interference in the election? So I don't think there are substantial new factual developments. I mean, the New York Times did run this story the other day about uh, this woman, Azra Turk, but I don't see that as a substantial new factual advance in the story, except in the sense that it reveals some uh, investigative activity that the FBI engaged in. It doesn't suggest to me that there was anything improper or uh, – so I do think the new development here is that this narrative has apparently caught the eye of the attorney general who has now spoken about it twice in two separate congressional hearings and does seem to be interested in it. And the uh, FBI director in his own congressional hearing the other day said that he had been substantially engaged with the attorney general about it. And so Barr seems to care about it both publicly and privately and has intimated that he thinks that there was something improper, although he's been wholly unclear about what his concerns are. And he's been odd in having ventilated the fact of him having concerns without giving anything like a factual predicate for what he's worried about. Um, so I, I think Barr is the driver behind it. I also think the pump was very primed in the sort of conservative media ecosystem. There were a lot of people just waiting for something like an attorney general of the United States to express concern about it. And so that world has responded very emphatically and enthusiastically to these expressions of concern on the part of the attorney general. And the last element is that the inspector general of the Justice Department has been investigating this stuff. And there have been rumors that, you know, has been doing so of, uh, aggressively and uh, with with certain concerns of the IG's own. And so we don't really know what those are. But uh, I do think that constellation of issues has all come together in a way that has given this, I would say, a second life, except that it seems like more of a third or fourth or fifth. And Susan, you make remarks about what a question too is how should we be looking at this then? Should we be looking at this as an attorney general objectively assessing facts or learning new things that are actually troubling him and he wants to get to the bottom of it? Or should we be viewing this as how his critics have portrayed him over the Mueller report, an attorney general acting like an advocate for the president who is seizing on this narrative as a way to counter uh, allegations that the president was somehow corrupt by his involvement or interest in Russian assistance during the election? So I think the answer to this question goes to Bill Barr before the Mueller report came out and Bill Barr after the Mueller report came out, or at least the public perceptions as to Bill Barr's credibility. And this is why I think the FBI director's statements earlier this week uh, are significant. And that's that 
even for people who were skeptical of the attorney general prior to, you know, his his summary of the Mueller report and uh, the press conference and, and really seeing um, sort of the, the level of his, you know, mendacity, essentially. Um, you know, whenever the attorney general says something like spying and a person like Bill Barr, who, you know, is not new to this game, uh, understands the connotations of words like spying, you know, even though later sort of tried to pretend like, oh, shucks, I was just saying, I just meant spying like I'm looking at you right now, spying on your cute I face. I spy with my little eye. <laughs> like as if, you know, he doesn't know exactly what he's doing right. and the fact that he's, uh, that he would repeat that statement again, I, I think shows um, uh, sort of the intentionality of it. But there's always a part of you that thinks, whoa, even if he's framing this, maybe in a particularly inflammatory way, is he just making it up out of nowhere? Is like, is there something he's seeing that's making him characterize it this way? Is there something we don't know? And I think whenever uh, before we sort of had these really, really heightened suspicions and really evidence to be especially uh, suspicious of Bill Barr, you know, we were sort of taking his word of, of this is a really weird thing to say. It's a really irresponsible thing to say. But like, does it indicate something? Now we're in Bill Barr post the Mueller report. The guy has no credibility whatsoever. Um, I, I don't know whether or not this is the worst version of this story where he's sort of a deranged conspiracy theorist or if he's just, you know, using inflammatory rhetoric because he watches Fox News. I don't even know which of those things are necessarily uh, worse or better. Um, but he's not a reliable narrator and he's not somebody that whenever he says something sort of the the media and uh, commentariat should be turning to say, obviously, there is something important in this that we need to sort of tease out. The remaining person with credibility in this administration is now Chris Wray. Um, and so the exchange he had uh, with Gene Shaheen in the Senate, I think it was yesterday, on Tuesday, maybe it was Monday or Tuesday, which I'll read, uh, she asks, do you have any evidence that any illegal surveillance into the, into the campaigns or individuals associated with the campaign by the FBI occurred? Ray responded, I don't think I personally have any evidence of that sort. Now, Ray is being careful. Uh, he was careful, you know, not to and not to criticize Bill Barr, who's his boss. When he was earlier asked whether or not he thought people had engaged in spying, he said, that's not the term I would use. Here he's answering by saying, I personally haven't seen anything like this. Um, if there was an issue, the current FBI director would be aware of it. He would have seen whatever evidence exists. And so I do think that this is another piece of evidence in the bucket of no, Barr's just kind of making stuff up or or this really is coming out of left field and there's there's not really something to this. Um, and, and I do think that at this point, Ray's word uh, or, or the indications that can be gleaned from his statements are substantially more significant than the attorney general. Now, there is an inspector general's investigation into this. The inspector general's investigation will find something because every inspector general's investigation in the history of inspectors general have found some kind of issue with something. It's what they do. The question here is whether or not there was a properly predicated investigation or not. Anything else is going to be a distraction. Surely that's going to be seized upon by Fox News. But that really is the one question we should stay focused on. So I don't think it's only one. I think there's two questions, right? One is, was there a properly predicated? I agree with you that that you got to keep your eye on the ball of what the IG is looking at. But to me, there's two questions. One is, was there a properly predicated investigation? And the second is, was there something deficient about the Carter Page FISA warrant? And I think those are two separate questions. 
But look, is the IG going to find when you when you do an after action report on an I agree with you completely about this. You do an after action report where you it's like a proctological exam on a on one of these major investigations that is done in real time. They made a million hard calls quickly with imperfect information. Are you going to find something to second guess? Yes. And I am sure that when the IG report comes out, there will be some pages that if you want to, you can focus on to the exclusion of the larger questions that the IG looked at. I think the key questions are, did the major judgments of the investigation have integrity or not? And if you're going to find like anything short of a finding that this was an illegal operation designed to, you know, be a coup or get the president or spy on the Trump campaign without proper predication, I think we will, you know, need to be very careful to distinguish that kind of finding on the one hand from the sort of criticisms that you can generate about any investigation in retrospect, how certain witnesses may have been handled or, you know, what mistakes individual agents may have made. Can I ask just a basic question though? In the New York Times, you mentioned earlier this report about Osra Turk, who is a woman they say was sent to London to help oversee a politically sensitive operation working alongside a longtime informant, a Cambridge professor named Stefan Halper, who they get George Papadopoulos basically in a bar and they start to try and figure out whether or not he as a Trump campaign advisor has any information about the campaign working on with Russians. My question is, so what? I mean, that is precisely what the FBI does. There's a manual of domestic intelligence or inv investigations, the Diog, Section 10, specifically spells out how you investigate political campaigns or religious organizations or journalists for that matter. I mean, it just strikes me that there is sort of a, I guess the fundamental question that I've always had about the people who think that there was spying is, is it that you object to the spying in order to investigate whether or not there is some sort of intelligence operation going on? Or is it that you're really just objecting to things like predicates and the technicalities that go into it, which are important, but of a different kind of you know, caliber of, of significance, it seems. And I think it's clearly it's the former that people seem to have the problem with. So let's get in touch with uh, the 1975 versions of ourselves when – uh, in the post-Watergate era when Attorney General Edward Levy actually promulgated, I think it was in 75, it may have been 76, promulgated what are called the Levy Guidelines, which are these standards of predication that keep getting updated. They're now called the Attorney General Guidelines, but they still exist. They're public documents. And, you know, the rule is not you're never allowed to spy on people. And I don't care if you use the word spy or collect or whatever. The, that is not the rule. The rule is you're not allowed to open an investigation without <clears throat> proper predication. That is a factual basis that justifies the opening of the investigation. And by the way, when a partner intelligence service comes to you and says, in the context of Russians hacking emails and dumping them into our political system and says to you, by the way, one of the campaign hangers on on one of your political campaigns was boasting when he got drunk the other day that the Russians had thousands of emails of Hillary Clinton. Your eyes perk up and that is predication for an investigation. And the rest of this stuff are generally speaking, I think they are 
I haven't seen any evidence of any investigative technique that wouldn't be pretty routine in the context of a properly predicated investigation of something like this. And so I agree with you. I don't understand what the issue is. And I think one of the reasons that this is happening is because the people who are so upset about it and are so interested in sort of ginning up a scandal, you know, Spygate or whatever they're calling it, actually have no idea what the rules are. And yeah. they have no idea the way investigations work. Well, and it's, and that's, you know, to, if we're taking, let's, let's just pretend for a second that people are acting in good faith and they have concerns about, you know, the government intruding on protected speech and political campaigns. Okay, that's a well-formulated, well-founded concern. We have a history of that. The guidelines that we have now are an outgrowth of when the intelligence community was doing that. But I take your point, Ben. I mean, I'm not seeing a real understanding on the part of critics of how this stuff actually works. What's interesting to me in the House and the Intelligence Committee is how Devin Nunes and Adam Schiff are both pushing for basically all of the information to be put out there because each side believes that it's going to vindicate their position. I happen to believe it's probably going to vindicate Adam Schiff's and not Devin Nunes's, which makes me wonder whether or not people who are supporting his position really understand what they might unleash if, they, if all this is out here for the public. But it might in important ways vindicate both of their positions in like in very different ways. That is, I don't expect that anything that comes out is going to undermine Schiff's belief that this was a properly predicated investigation and involved lawful techniques within that context. On the other hand, would such a disclosure show that there was surveillance of people associated with the Trump campaign that Devin Nunes will be able to say, look, they were spying right. on the Trump campaign, right. even though that is not really what happened. Yes, absolutely. And so I think they actually the, – the agreement that all this stuff should come out reflects the fact that it will – while it actually only legally supports one of their positions, it gives the other a lot of fuel to pour on the fire. Well, speaking of spying, this is going to be a tortured transition. Cyber spying and attacks – if you're Hamas, will apparently get you a missile shot down your ass. That's, That's one of the worst transitions or segues you've done in a long time, Shane. Congratulations so on it. So bad. So bad. I guess it's down because they shot it from the – anyway. Um, <laughs> the uh, Israeli Defense Force <clears throat> launched an airstrike in Gaza on what it said was the headquarters of Hamas's cyber operations. Um, Hamas has a cyber operation. We can get to that in a second. That's interesting. Um, this came after the Israeli – according to the Israelis, um, there was an attempted attack or some kind of penetration of senior reports on Israeli infrastructure by this – Hamas outfit and the Israelis responded by destroying the entire building and presumably some number of people who may have been in it. Susan, first question for you is this has kind of sparked a very interesting debate about whether or not nations have the right to respond militarily or kinetically, as we like to say, to cyber operations or potential cyber operations. And I'm just curious your first take on this of whether or not essentially the Israelis overreacted by blowing up an entire building for what amounts to a failed hacking attempt. Yeah, so people are latching on to this story because it it goes in line with a series of questions that have existed for the, for a long time about the justification in responding to a cyber attack with kinetic force. And so this feels like 
the first really clean example, although there are reasons that it probably is not the first even really clean example, of a nation state pointing to a cyber attack and blowing something up in response. The United States for a long time has said things like, you know, we uh, we reserve all options, right, refusing to sort of say we would respond in the same domain in, in response to cyber attacks. I would commend anyone who's interested in this, um, an article that we ran on Lawfare on Monday by Bobby Chesney, um, who sort of argues that this actually is not an especially unprecedented thing, and it actually doesn't raise serious questions about legality, because we aren't talking about an individual cyber attack, uh, one that was unsuccessful, by the way, uh, and then a nation dropping a bomb in response, um, which would raise all kinds of of, uh, difficult questions about proportionality, et cetera. This is uh, something that occurs in the context of an ongoing conflict that's happening over a course of a number of days. Within the the context of that conflict, this appears to be a legitimate military target, or at least a legitimate military target. Uh, you know, by the re- by the read of sort of viewing these people as combatants, um, and so this doesn't stand for sort of this larger proposition. There were Hamas in the building, and they happened to be hackers, right? That it would it wasn't sort of the um, this isolated thing. The one piece that does strike me as sort of unusual, and, and I guess I, I don't quite understand. Um, the the strategical here this is certainly a f- the first time that a nation state's military has taken to twitter to announce it. And the idea of tweet was cleared for release. We thwarted an attempted Hamas cyber offensive uh, offensive against Israeli targets. Following our successful cyber defensive operation, we targeted a building where the Hamas cyber operatives work. Um, there actually hasn't been any reporting on whether or not anyone was killed. Um, we just don't know that information yet. But it, it does strike me as... Um, a tweet that was certainly going to get this kind of response. And I guess I don't, to my mind, it's not entirely clear um, whether this was about signaling the extent of their attribution capabilities, right? It's not just that we know what you're doing. uh, We know where you're doing it from, and we can specifically target that as sort of as a warning, um, whether or not it is about sort of uh, staking out this territory of, you know, of uh, beginning to normalize or, or, or start a conversation that um, this type of response to a cyber offensive cyber operation, even a thwarted offensive cyber operation, uh, is is appropriate and proportional in some sort of small way. Um, so that I'm not I'm not surprised by the tone of the reaction, given the manner in which this was announced. Um, although I, I agree with Bobby that um, the, the facts and the law are not especially surprising or novel. Well, you actually just raised a point that I hadn't considered and you answered a question that I had, which was, okay, you've blown up this one building and they said now their cyber operations are out of business. Well, they can just go hook up the computers someplace else. But if you're announcing to the world, oh, no, we know where you're doing it from, then that you might think twice about just going and hooking up the computer someplace in Gaza and trying to replicate these kinds of attacks because the IDF seems to be saying we know how to find you and we will attack you if we see you hooking up again. Right. So I agree with you both that this is a super interesting component of this and a, a couple of observations with the caveat that I actually don't know what it means. But so – The conflict between Gaza in particular and the IDF is one of the most ultimately asymmetric long-term conflicts in the world. And there is 
this aspect of it is the extreme of its asymmetry, which is to say not only is Israel one of the most – you know, it's a really powerful and capable military and Gaza is – is a basket case and a, a very difficult, you know, long-term crisis situation. Uh, but Israel also has one of the most capable cyber defense systems of any country in the world and really significant cyber offensive capability as well. And so what you have here is uh, the asymmetrically weaker party attacking the stronger party in a particular area of the stronger party's strength which is a really unusual thing. It's not the way Hamas usually plays it. They usually try to hit the sort of soft underbellies of Israeli civilian society somehow. Here they're actually going after one of the Israeli government's strengths and the Israeli government is turning around by saying, we can thwart you in cyber, in the cyber domain, and by the way, we can hit you in kinetic terms in near real time when you're doing it. And so there is – and I think that tweet is a reflection of that chest thumping that they're saying don't play in these waters because not only will we stop the cyber attack but we will kill you. Uh, and so I think but I'm not sure that that's the messaging dimension of this. It's just the lion roaring at the mouse a little bit in, in asymmetric warfare terms. And my guess is that from a Hamas point of view – this is probably going to be considered a failed experiment because you actually – you don't get a lot of cyber benefit here. You're fighting on, on, in, a, in a landscape in which you're, you're unlikely to be able to do anything really substantial and you can get hit in the real world domain in which uh, you're quite vulnerable to Israeli firepower. And the Israeli media is a little bit better sourced than or substantially better sourced than U.S. media um, on sort of the thinking of the Israeli military on it. And one interesting quote, they actually have someone saying it on the record, um, was that this was one of the first instances in which Israeli soldiers had to fend off a cyber attack while also fighting a physical battle. Mm. And so um, it's clear that one of the elements that got uh, the IDF's attention here was they were engaged in a kinetic operation uh, and had to respond to uh, a cyber attack, presumably uh, with the capacity to impact that kinetic operation. Uh, and so that also might be what's driving uh, the nature of the response here, that they're, uh, they're confronting that threat, which has been uh, certainly discussed and theorized for a long time. Uh, but this is, this is uh, apparently one of the first times they've actually seen it in practice. So that's interesting. Are they saying then that they believe the attack was aimed at an Israeli military target that would have pre prevented their attempts to do a, a kinetic attack? Or is it that in the context, it's like the cyber and the kinetic modes attached to each other and everything is now fair game. So they're actually clear that they that the uh, offensive operation was aimed at a civilian, what they, they claim mm. to be a civilian Isra uh, Israeli target. So either they're saying As that the there's some... <laughs> right, there's some there's something about the nature of what was targeted uh, that could impact military operations, right? So imagine um, uh, civilian communication structures, right? Uh, you know, if um, if all the streetlights were different, that obviously would have, uh, would have an impact. 
impact, or potentially that they're just talking about capacity, right? So uh, to the extent that the military is involved in both um, responding to domestic incidents and also uh, engaged in an external conflict, there's just a, a resource overwhelming if you're uh, if you're focusing on responding to a, a major or in this case unsuccessful cyber operation on one front. That's obviously you get to divert resources away from from another. You know, this is a somewhat messy example because you have the kinetic warfare already going on and, you know, and all the reasons we talked about. It seems to me that the, the example that would sort of put things more to a test would be something like you know, if the Internet Research Agency caused a blackout in midtown Manhattan uh, and 50 people died because of traffic accidents or systems failures or something like that, would the United States military then have the right to launch a cruise missile at the Internet Research Agency? So, so that's the pure example. And to make it even purer, remove it from the context of any ongoing kinetic uh, fight between the United States and Russia, right. right? It's merely in the context of heightened diplomatic tensions. Right. And here you have a you know you have a low grade military conflict uh, that is sometimes frozen but never never not there. And when it erupts, it erupts very violently. I mean, there, this was a, a situation in which there were uh, some very large number of of missiles and rockets sent over into the Israeli side, and there were people injured on the Israeli side and people killed on the Palestinian side. And so you have a uh, you have an ongoing situation where both sides are using violence. Uh, and in that context, you have a cyber attack of some, uh, of some type against civilian architecture. And I don't think it is – I very much agree with Bobby that I don't think it is a particularly surprising thing that the Israelis, uh, you know, A, used cyber and B, used non-cyber means to repel the attack. All right. Let's move on to object lessons. Who has object lessons today? Ben has an object lesson. Why don't you go first? So my object lesson is my new hashtag, hashtag Mueller report out of context. And this was inspired. That's a very long hashtag. Yeah. Well, this was inspired by a Twitter feed that I don't know if it's still active called New York Times out of context, which every day grabs a single sentence from the New York Times and tweets it with no sense of what's around it. And it's hilarious. Uh, and so what I decided to do was every day tweet a single sentence of the Mueller report with an appropriate citation and just the hashtag Mueller report out of context. And um, so I urge you all to click on the hashtag and uh, follow every day one sentence chosen not quite randomly from the Mueller report, but from somewhere in it. Have you started yet? Yes, I started What yet. was your first what was uh, your first Hang tweet? on. Let me pull out my first two days. I've only done two days of it. So yesterday's was, quote, the president called McGahn repeatedly that day to ask him to intervene with the Department of Justice. And according to the notes, the president was, quote, getting hotter and hotter. Get rid? Unquote. And then today's one was, Quote, the president opened the conversation by saying, I don't have a lawyer, unquote. Uh, so every day I'm going to find one and it's going to be hashtag Mueller report out of context. These sound like the beginning of like improv exercises or something <laughs> like that. Um, OK, I have my object now. Um, I found a white whale 
And I don't mean the president's tax returns. Um, this is a little bit of an old story, but it's a new one for us. Uh, I'll read from the uh, Washington Post coverage of this. An alleged Russian spy whale is refusing to leave a Norwegian port city in what appears to be a high-profile detection after a week of global attention on the unnamed beluga. <laughs> so Defection? This, <laughs> this white beluga whale, well, they're all white, I guess, shows up in this Norwegian port uh, you know, coming up and basically, you know, making kissy faces at these Norwegian sailors. And they see that it's got a GoPro camera on it with apparently like a return address to St. Petersburg, Russia on it, <laughs> which I love this story, both because the whale is clearly not leaving the side of the Norwegian. So he appears to want to defect. Um, but if this is, in fact, a Russian spy whale, it really just goes, goes to show you that the Russians are absolutely pervasive and relentless in their intelligence gathering operations, and they don't give a shit if you find out who they are. They will send you a whale with St. Petersburg written on it. With love. With From love, Russia. comrade. I'm, I'm just against the mistreatment of beluga whales. They're pretty. They always have that smiley they face. They do. They're Maybe really, they liked the GoPro. They're beautiful. Maybe. And they should not be. I think we should like leave whales out of our. I think we should conflict. leave the whales out of it too. Exactly. And they did take the camera off him, so now he's swimming around without it on. But he didn't look like he was hurt or anything like that. He looked like maybe he was uh, not happy with his life, though, as an agent of influence. Belugas always look happy. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of the podcast, which does not make me happy, although I am smiling. But we'll do it again next week. That's good. Throw me some fish. <laughs> National Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. And we're going to post a special video of me throwing Shane some fish. <laughs> sure. Sure we are. <laughs> Tune in quick for that. You can buy hats, uh, GoPros, whales. Whale saddles. <laughs> whale saddles <laughs> at nationalsecuritywhalestore.com. No. <laughs> It's actually, what is it again? TheLawfareStore.com. You can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please remember to leave a rating and review. It really helps us out. Our audio engineer this week was Matthew Kahn. The podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Bill Barr and his defiant debut punk album, Assert This. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. Like Bill Barr with a mohawk. Can't you see it? Yeah. Like shoving his fist in Jerry Nadler's face. <laughs> like in like a, I think view him as like a face paint, sort of like glam rock. But could, like a Billy Idol this. type of thing. Yeah. <laughs> Sophia Yan on the back on the keyboards. That's good. I think it would sell. I think it really would. Uh, on behalf of my good friends Ben Wittes, Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. 